Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Brandon Monroe, the CEO of Bannerman Resources, but also uranium market commentator for our weekly catch-up. We talk about Kazakhstan and Russia and what's been happening there. Uh, and also the Americans have jumped into the market uh, with their advanced reactor demonstration program. We discuss that in a little bit of detail. Plus SMRs, what is that? Small modular reactors, are they the future? Plus, Euratom has made a couple of statements this week. We discussed the pertinence of them and what they could mean for investors. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, Brandon, how are you doing, sir? I'm well, thanks, Matt. What about yourself? I'm good, but you look like you're back in the office. Have you been allowed Well, out? I am, yeah. Things, things in Western Australia are going really, really well. We're getting about one new case a week right now mm. so uh, we've decided to go back to the office and in, in fact the government in Western Australia has told everyone to go back to work and now made schooling compulsory again from next Monday so it's nice to be back in the office that's fantastic I hadn't actually realized that I spoke to my mother like a like a good son should do um, on a on I think it was last Sunday she's saying I didn't realize this but Australia's had only around a hundred deaths across the board mm -hmm. because of the policies that they've implemented. So you have been managing this extremely well. And that, that you know, because I do speak to a lot of gold producers and, and others in Australia, and it seems to have gone quite well for you. Well, it has. I, I, in fairness, I think we're assisted by just the way that we live in Australia. Uh, Western Australia is certainly benefiting from being very remote. And because of that remoteness, we're quite self-sufficient. So closing the borders was, for most people, just inconvenient. Lots of loved ones being separated, you know, tragic stories, etc. Few businesses being uh, affected by that. But for in Perth, for so long, we've been such a damn long way from everywhere yeah. that it's kind of normal. Yeah. And where your mum is, I mean, Sydney and Victoria, uh, Sydney and um, Melbourne, the states of New South Wales and Victoria, they've had a much greater concentration of COVID-19 cases and represented the majority of the fatalities as well. Yeah. But they're also much bigger cities, they're, they're denser cities. So I think the combination of those two things and perhaps really lovely warm weather that we've had has made the job a bit easier. It has, but we've got a nice segue here because Kazakhstan, has um, ended the emergency and, and, and some restrictions as well, which obviously bodes well in terms of uranium production. Um, what's, what's your take on that? Do you think they've come back too early or what do you, um, what do you know? Well, based on the stats, um, the easing of restrictions seems appropriate. Uh, so let's just put to one side how solid those stats are for now. but. Kazakhstan also benefits from being very low population density, like Australia. It's a very big country with a fairly small population. Uh, they do have more confined living, more European-style living, but they did lock down both Nasultan and Astana very, very early, and they closed their borders with China early. So they took a number of measures that a uh, former Soviet country can do quite easily in terms of the the way that people are used to being regulated. Um, so where we're at at the moment is they announced at the beginning of the week that the state of emergency has been lifted 
and a few of the restrictions have been changed. It's uh, it's less like a European lockdown and moving towards being a little bit more like an Australian lockdown. You can go and shop for things other than food now, for example. Uh, people can go back to offices if they need to. But we aren't seeing any return to industrial activities. Uh, there's still a lockdown of the regions there and the um, report from the government and the um, comments from the Prime Minister seem to, the President, seem to indicate that they'll be reviewing that on a region by region basis. And as your audience would know, the regions that host the majority of Kazakh uranium production were some of the earliest affected by COVID-19. So I don't see it really meaning anything for uranium production and the resumption of wellhead development by Kazatomprom yet. It's something clearly to follow. I think there's possibly had a impact on equities this week um, with the headlines seeming to indicate that things are getting back to normal. But uh, talking to people in Kazakhstan, it's still a long, long way from that. It is the beginning of normalcy, but there's still many, many steps that need to take place. Okay, and because if I look at some of the commentary in the marketplace at the moment, there's there's a lot of adversarial negative commentary around Kazakhstan, their impact on the market, the way that Kazat and Prom is playing this out. I know we've had conversations, and you know you're a believer, and I know you have first-hand conversations with them, but you're a believer that they are doing what they're doing for all the right reasons. So you don't see them coming back anytime soon, or do you think that they are going to be under some pressure from wherever to get back into production soon? Because, you know, as we said last week, you know, oil is, is the oil revenues are struggling a bit. There, there will be some pressure on them to come back soon. And when you read the president's comments, and as you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to have an in-house translator of Russian. So when you read the nuance of the president's comments, they are obviously like most countries looking for uh, industrial activity to recommence as soon as possible, but they're also looking for stability of their currency. They are um, hoping that any forms of foreign currency um, can help to offset the impact of oil. So on the one hand, you might say, look, that will create some level of pressure for um, Kazatom Prom to come back. But you do need to remember that compared to what oil does for Kazakh foreign reserves, uranium is still a tiny little blip. Uh, it's very important to Kazakh pride uh, because they've got such a dominant position in the uranium market. But when it comes to dollars and cents or tengi for that matter, uh, it's just a small little corner that doesn't even register double digits when it comes to uh, foreign reserves. And, and I think they will be very careful. It's a big logistical mobilisation uh, exercise here. They'll need to get 22,000 people back operating um, to get this wellhead development going. And they won't want false starts. They won't want to half mobilise and then have, say, a second uh, infection rate come from over the border, for example, one of two borders which are presenting a risk for them. And I think... I think, in the context of them having a good commercial basis for a continued shutdown, buffering those negative consequences to their operating business, I can imagine that they will take their time and make sure that they get it right. 
Okay, so it, it's inconsequential. Uranium revenues are inconsequential to the sovereign wealth fund, to the country. So as a whole, point well made and, and well taken. But it does have a huge impact in the uranium market, equities specifically. So people and funds, I suspect, are going to want to see Kazabatom Prom not producing for some time because it will start putting more and more pressure, these lost pounds in the market, is going to put pressure on. So, can you? How long can you see them holding out for? Uh, that's how long is a piece of string in in the situation. I mean, we could we could put on a whiteboard three great reasons why they should try and rush production back, and three great reasons why they should hold off, and probably three extra reasons why the government would want them to come back and hold off at the same time. Is so. There just aren't any real indicators. I mean, one thing we should bear in mind is their closest neighbour, both uh, geographically but also culturally, Russia, is now going through a peak COVID uh, phase. Um, their fatality rate is remarkably low compared to similar countries and, and countries that have a similar way of living. But nonetheless, I mean, they've slipped into third place, I think, in terms of the total number of confirmed COVID cases. So you'd expect that would be weighing on the mind of decision makers, both government and industry in Kazakhstan. And as we've seen in other countries, it's only a matter of weeks before we know if those Russian numbers have peaked and are receding and everything's back under control. So if I was making a decision, whether it was a for a uranium project or anything else for that matter in Kazakhstan, I'd be thinking, well, oh, let's give ourselves another few weeks and just wait and see how things play off on our northern border. Well, I mean, just on that, Russia, because they've, they've had 250,000 confirmed cases and the official number is 1%, but the numbers in Moscow would suggest that they potentially could be three times that. We won't know for a while. And I suspect Mr Vladimir Putin is struggling a bit because he's he's you know obviously looking at some kind of constitutional reform process at the moment and, and so COVID has come along and interrupted this somewhat um and i you know i've seen a few pictures of him sort of staring blankly at a screen with <laughs> trying to bark out orders and, and, get, and get things moving but he you know he's he's been isolating as well so I, I, I just wonder how much uh, pressure Russia is going to be able to exert on countries like Kazatomprom. That, that seems to be a much-asked question. I think that's a, is that realistic? Well, I guess the question is pressure for what ends? Do you mean on Kazakh uranium production and making sure that they can access that production? Yeah, so uh, interesting comment, and you, you might have picked that up from some of the comments made by Grant Isaac from Cameco during the week where he pointed to uh, his view, which I share, which is Russia doesn't have the domestic uranium production, either mined production or from treating uh, tails through their enrichment program to power the full extent of their nuclear export ambitions. And for them, I think they'd be looking across the border at Kazakhstan thinking, well, that's okay. You know, we've got a long history of cooperation here. We've got a lot of shared cultural values. We've got a deeply integrated economy where Kazakhstan is still very reliant on Russian capital and Russia as an export market for other goods and so on. It's, so if I was Russia, I wouldn't be feeling 
particularly concerned. Uh, to their south, however, you know, I think the big question is for China. They've been able to buy pretty much whatever they've wanted out of Kazakhstan so far. But if the Russian export program continues in the vein that it has so far, I think China will have to really start asking itself questions about how long and how much of that Kazakh supply will be available to them over the medium to longer term. Okay. Well, I think people can look at, and we'll put links below to some of the conversations we've had over the past couple of weeks with regards to supply demand. Um, but today, I want to talk about something else, which we've not talked about, which is SMRs. SMRs. Um, again, it's, it's that geopolitical race, be that Russia and China have got their designs. They've got each have got their own unique designs, land-based and floating, it seems. Uh, so some very interesting options there. And also the US this week has announced, well, I think potentially, um, it, it, well, it's been going a while, but this week they made a bit of an uh, announcement off the back, I suspect, of the nuclear fuel working group announcement a month ago, which is their ARDP program, which is the Advanced Reactor um, Demonstration Program. So maybe we should start with the Americans first. Should we do that, ARDP? So what's that all about? So I think it is off the back of the working group report. And in fact, it was that report was cited in the press release. So what they've said is they're making available 230 million US dollars to try and ensure that there is an American SMR, small modular reactor, technology in commercial operation by 2027. And they've, they've allocated a proportion of that to fund programs that are able to get a reactor in operation in five to seven years in commercial operation. So if we take a step back, and we, we have talked about this, but probably not in the last 12 months, America was leading the way when it came to SMRs. They had multiple viable SMR technologies, not just a couple. And uh, because of, I suppose, the industrial capital roots of how American technology has developed, there were lots of competing companies, including some very high profile ones, such as Mr. Gates, and they all had their different technologies, which were all competing essentially only against each other. There were, the Canadians had a design and there were a couple of other designs around, but it was really an American race. Then what we saw is the Obama administration turning its back largely on nuclear and the relevance of nuclear technology uh, in favour of a number of different technologies, but predominantly looking to position America in the renewable race and electric vehicles and so on. It was only when the Rick Perry came as Secretary of Energy under the Trump administration that we saw some serious revival of these programs. There's been a number of small funding grants made available. In fact, there was one last week for, I think, $27 million uh, for some sort of a switch that I don't even understand that does something clearly important because they're putting 27 million bucks towards it. But that's an example. There's lots of this going on, but this is the biggest and the boldest and certainly the largest number that's attached to it. And it's attached a time frame, which is quite clearly a call to arms that they want to have nuclear SMR technology capable of domestic and international deployment before 2027. 
and that aligns very well with uh, the various comments made by the Department of Energy, which were summarised in that working group document a couple of weeks ago. So, but this feels like a rather large and giant science fair. They're trying to identify a technology which is obviously proprietary to you know US, um, the US itself, and presumably they will they'll come down hard on on one technology or, or, or another. And there are people who will insert themselves into that food chain along the way. But 230 million bucks is not a lot in the context of things. It sounds like a lot because the nuclear fuel working group, you know, they, they talked about 150 million bucks a year and we don't know where that's being allocated. Isn't it time for the U.S. to start joining up these programs, start to, you know, do what I think the nuclear fuel working group We'll call it a policy document because I think some people are branding it that. A policy document that, that shows intent. Isn't it time they sort of brought all of these um, departments, agencies together and consolidated their budgets? Because it's just all a little bit piecemeal, isn't it? I think the government approach is re- reasonably centralised. You've got the no- Office of Nuclear Energy that sits within Department of Energy. And it's been really the dominant supporter in all of this and they've done a good job you know when you consider that they inherited a fairly stale agenda from the uh, democrat administration i think they're doing a good job Um, but your point about is the broader interests of u.s nuclear technology better served by two or three competitors who've pooled technologies and pooled resources rather than having an array of competitors competing for intelligence, competing for technology, competing for markets, etc. You know, that's a that's a debate that's even being had at a conventional scale nuclear reactor table. And really the Western world, if it's got a legitimate chance of fully competing with Russia and China on conventional nuclear reactors, they're going to need to get together and have a standardized nuclear reactor in exactly the same way that China only exports and markets one single reactor um, of uh, one gigabyte scale. That's the Hualong one. There is also the CAP 1400, which is a larger scale that's designed to compete with the bigger EPR that France makes. But the the issue is the, the costs of getting design approvals, even generic design approvals, run into the billions in key markets. And the confusion and just the difficulty for regulators of choosing between all of these different designs means that it slows down the process and it makes even a procurement exercise very expensive for governments and almost prohibitively expensive for uh, private power concerns. So Russia exports a single reactor design. China essentially exports a single reactor design in the Hualong One. Okay, so we... so let me, let me and ask. And this kind of something Okay, so let me ask. So Russia has been at this some time. China has been at this some time. America it looks like it's just starting the process. How long is that process? When can America start to genuinely say, "We're back at the table, guys. We we we've got a solution here which we think we can commercialize, and we're going to start doing that." I think they're back at the table already. Like if you look at some of the technologies that have continued in the meantime, uh, they've they've continued to maybe not prosper, but they've certainly, as private enterprises, 
continued to push forward. And we're seeing that, for example, in Australia, where the nuclear power debate is fully restricted to SMRs only for a couple of probably pretty good reasons. And there's one uh, SMR reactor that had the best chance of, I think, capturing the debate here because its audio visuals were superior. So, and it was the most advanced. And so they're definitely a front runner, but there are others as well. And of course, Bill Gates has used his profile to uh, capture the imagination for their particular product. What was slowing the US down was predominantly availability of sites. Um, and they are addressing that. They don't need money to the same extent to do that. And that's not such a big issue for China and Russia. Um, and for example, China has already selected uh, a couple of sites for their um, uh, agile dragons um, that they plan to do. They're one nimble, nimble dragons. Nimble. Yeah. Your um, dialogue of Chinese must be slightly different to mine, Matt. Cantonese, I'm going with. Yeah, Cantonese every time um, <laughs> but but let's 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 talk about I just want to remind people why SMRs are being considered um, as part of the future here um, it's going to come down to you know pricing timing um, mobility and tying into infrastructure because why, why don't we talk about some of those things so pricing so conventional versus SMR okay so first of all they aren't necessarily um, better value per megawatt of power produced. That's something that remains to be seen. The hope is that they will be because they can be produced in larger numbers and they can be produced in a factory. But the point is that they don't require such a large absolute capital commitment. You don't have to commit tens of billions of dollars to build a large scale, efficient conventional plant. You can nibble away with hundreds of millions instead. And that'll make them more competitive to, for example, renewables that have been implemented in a smaller, more piecemeal fashion. Um, but the factory production is really important here because it goes to several uh, things that have slowed down conventional nuclear power. The biggest one is the perception of delays. There have been delays, but they are mainly associated with first of a kind construction. And as we all know, the first motor vehicle of a new range takes several years to develop and uh, once they're in full production they take a couple of days and there's been an element of that um, there's also been a lot of lawfare that has slowed down the construction of conventional nuclear power plants um, and also just the availability of contractors that have got the skills and experience to construct what are still um, relatively unique and very, very large construction processes. So an SMR, the, the best of them are designed to be built in the factory, transported by conventional means to the site and a relatively small amount of site works to be done. And that reduces obviously the construction time risk, it reduces financing risk, it reduces the effectiveness of lawfare tactics by anti-nuclear campaigners. The fact that their footprint's so much smaller means that they can be built closer to urban centres. They're less likely to evoke the emotions of interest groups and so forth. So that's that's in itself a big advantage. Well, talk to, talk to me about that because you know th these are much smaller footprint um, projects. 
tree and the, the cost is significantly less, significantly less. But it still needs to be tied into uh, an existing infrastructure. And you just said these could be near or in urban centres. Do you think emotionally people are going to want a nuclear facility smack bang in the middle of their city? Uh, it doesn't need to be smack bang in the middle, but you don't need a 50 kilometre exclusion ratio from one. Now, we know that you don't need that uh, from a well-placed conventional nuclear power plant either, but it's hard to convince the populace of that. Uh, there are many examples around the world where communities have asked for nuclear facilities to be placed near to them. Um, sometimes, like in Scandinavia, for as pragmatic a reason as they don't want to commute 50 kilometres, let alone build the power infrastructure for an unnecessary 50-kilometre carriage of electricity. Um, but just their scale, their design, their enhanced safety features, and the fact that they're totally different to the first and second generation nuclear power plants that have had problems at Third Mile Island, Chernobyl, and of course, Fukushima. So, but I'll tell you where their most interesting applications are. I think the best, most fervent case for SMRs is immediate hand-in-glove displacement of coal power generation. And that's because you can pretty much match them up with the existing output of a moderate-sized coal-fired power station. And all of that electricity infrastructure is all there. It doesn't need to be rebuilt. It doesn't need to be replaced. And in a manner of speaking, you could turn the coal station off one day and flick the switch on an SMR the next. And compare that to, let's just say, renewables, for example, or hydro or um, a large-scale power program um, that needs to be implemented. You just can't use the existing grid infrastructure in the same productive way as you can uh, by displacing coal with SMR nuclear. That's, that's, interesting. Um, the that's other, interesting. The other really interesting case is for remote applications. So remote industrial applications such as mining centres and uh, Russia has one of those earmarked for its first land-based SMR. Uh, remote um, uh, towns, for example, certainly for military applications. So the US is looking at not only small but mobile reactors so that uh, they can establish a power system for their various campaigns, um, a highly localised power system that has all sorts of strategic advantages um, over other forms of power that they would use in that situation. Um, and the, the big variety that we've got of SMRs in the pipeline, they're everything from um, tens of megawatts up to the sort of modularity that can achieve uh, an entire gigawatt of power as it's needed. So there's a new market for them. And when you look at remote applications that might otherwise be relying on, for example, diesel, there's a very, very, very strong social, environmental and economic impetus for those types of solutions. No, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating space in terms of, well, I'm interested in how it will turn out, what those applications are. It's, you know, they will package it according to the needs. Got, they've got the ability to package it according to the needs. I, w I was reading um, an article with regards to the, um, was the RITM 2000, the, the Russian technology, um, which kind of led on to this kind of floating power source. 
Now, that makes me nervous. Ships at sea with nuclear uh, power. Surely that's a recipe for disaster. That sounds like a really good or bad Hollywood movie. Um, happening right there. So what are, because you touched upon it earlier, you said they have enhanced safety features. So what are those enhanced safety features? Okay, well, first of all, let me let me challenge your unnatural fear of floating nuclear reactors for a moment. Um, because we've had extensive nuclear reactors at sea uh, since the advent of nuclear power through predominantly naval use. So uh, the Russian also, Russians have maintained a fleet of nuclear-powered icebreakers as well because of their power requirements. Um, so I think the US operates still 74 um, micro-reactors for their Navy. Uh, Russia doesn't have quite so many, but they've got more diverse applications. And to my knowledge, and certainly to, to public record, there's never been a single incident on any of those. Um, obviously, naval ships have had other related incidents and they've had uh, nuclear fuel um, on them. But it, it, as far as we're aware, aware at the world at large, that's never created an issue at all. So there is some precedent, very significant precedent, for reactors operating safely at sea. Um, and I could, I could parrot some of the things that have been told to me by the technical experts about why floating reactors far safer or got simpler safety features um, to a land-based one. Um, but I think what it comes down to is it's two things to do with safety and SMRs. The first one is the real safety features. And they've had the opportunity to dramatically rethink all aspects of the production of nuclear power to craft the next generation of technologies here. And in that respect, they've eliminated to effectively zero the potential for accidents and the potential for radiological risks here. And everything that you can think of is included in these reactors. Um, now, in fairness, that's the case with the Gen 3 reactors as well. They're just at a larger scale. So that goes to the second point, which is the perception of safety. And in the nuclear sector, to win the hearts and minds of some countries, such as Australia, you really needed to come out with something different so we don't we aren't talking about why chernobyl could never happen in australia we finally can say that's a completely different technology you're trying to liken uh, a, a modern nuclear power plant to the great fires of london for example you know it's a dramatically different technology where it, a comparison just isn't valid or fair and it whilst technically i could tell you that that's true for a gen 3 conventional nuclear reactor, it's very hard to make that argument for someone who doesn't spend a lot of time looking at the at the science of all of this. Okay. SMRs, very exciting. We'll put some links uh, in the commentary below and um, hopefully people can, you know, get into it, get into the detail. Um, Cameco, this week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pat ourselves on our backs with regards to Port Hope. They made an announcement this week. Yeah, so they're returning Port Hope to full production. Uh, they want to be back at it fully by the 25th of May. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think what you're referring to is that um, we both sort of deduced that as being quite likely from both the tone and the commentary of the Cameco quarterly results. 
Um, if I remember correctly, we, we made the observation that the way that Cameco was talking about Port Hope and Blind River was very different to the, the, the words and the tone that they were using to talk about Cigar Lake. And we didn't expect that that four weeks would carry on yeah. any further. And so as it turns out, it hasn't. Um, and I think what, what we can glean from that is interesting for what it talks to their intentions behind Cigar Lake. First of all, the way that they described that shutdown at Port Hope in the first place was very different. They were keen to uh, get the message across that it was a preemptive move. It was to put it in their control. They didn't want to be turning it on or turning it off. Um, they, they used language like these industrial facilities don't like being turned on and off, um, particularly at short notice. And they made a plan to bring forward some of the summer maintenance program that they otherwise would have had to undertake. So right from the beginning, the language was very different at Port Hope. And then the update that we had with the quarterly report was the results was also, you know, along those same lines compared with Cigar Lake, where uh, I think Tim Gitzel was, you know, genuinely quite upset about the outbreak that had happened at La Roche, uh, which is a First Nations community close to um, their operations in Saskatchewan, where I think he said on the call there'd been 50 new cases reported in one day. And he acknowledged that they had employees from that community and, and, and I, clearly they were all feeling the concern for that community. So I don't think Port Hope is any sort of indicator of what may or may not happen at Cigar Lake because they've been characterised very differently from the beginning. Yeah, I, th I was actually quite impressed with their quarterly call. Um, it feels like a company in control. Um, they know what mm -hmm. they're about and uh, how they're going to get there responsibly, genuinely responsibly. Because again, when we kind of get this feedback, people try and read into, perhaps too much read into the intent. And we get a lot of commentary about Kazatom Prom and Cameco controlling the market, controlling um, pricing in the market. Um, which again, we've discussed at, at length on numerous occasions, um, I don't think could be further from the truth. I agree. They're, they're, they're a, a responsible company that's doing things for the right reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Now, a um, little bit of activity in the market this week. There's a bit of selling. There's a few, I'm not quite sure that, uh, why. Some people have said that it might be a fund liquidating their position or taking advantage of, the, you know, the price in the market. Um, have you got any thoughts as to what happened? As far as equities are concerned, I, I don't have a good feel for what's happening. I've, I've got a couple of wild theories or rather not so wild theories. Um, if you look at the bounce that Uranium equities have had, um, they've, they've oversold quite deeply, but that was in common with just about all speculative resources stocks, particularly when I look at my watch lists across other commodities, even technology and so forth. But they did make quite a good recovery. Um, I expect with a spot price that's flattened now, come back a little bit, there's probably some people who bought the dip and are now taking profits. And that doesn't surprise me. We haven't seen such big volumes not in the stocks that I follow anyway, that indicate a big level of fundamental selling or fund selling. Um, maybe you're seeing it differently in some of the other stocks, but 
I haven't seen anything that would indicate more than people just going, you know what, I'm 100% on my money in a few weeks. Spot price has flattened, it's come off a few cents. Maybe I should just take some of those profits and, and uh, see if we see more volatility. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I know we did. Um, you know, the price has levelled out again. Um, I, and I don't know, I'm not seeing much movement anytime soon um, in that. And I think, you know, a few people called that yourself, Justin Garrow called that. Um, until something meaningful happens in the market, I, you know, I don't think this is going to move one way or the other anytime soon. But we shall see. We shall see. The, great, the, the famous last words. Um, I, I don't want to talk about this today, but I, I do. I do want to make um, just just wouldn't mind your observation on it. But um, your atom, they they made a couple of statements. I mean. I, some a bit obvious and some that surprised me. Um, they, they, they talked about uh, lack of transport hubs, lack of investment, um, and permanent reduction. So you know the, the, those those comments in the market. I mean, did you find those any of those surprising? I mean, why, why did they bother making uh, that statement? Yeah, look, I mean, I didn't find any of it surprising, but perhaps I'm not the right person to ask. When I when I looked at the report, I think I deal with about half of those people through World Nuclear Association working group. So all of these factors I'm quite close to because of what I'm doing there. Um, but to put some of those things in a bit more context. So for the audience, this is basically a security of supply report that's produced each year. Uh, it's not the uh, inventory report that people are looking forward to. We've got a couple of weeks before that comes out. Although it did make a broad-based comment on inventory um, where, as I expected and as most people would know, in very broad terms, the average level of inventory held by EU utilities is uh, three years of supply. And that's been fairly consistently the case. And in fact, Euratom uh, imposes uh, legal requirements to hold minimum levels of uh, strategic inventory uh, on its members. Uh, so the transport issue, they were identifying uh, risks rather than problems that are here today and um, so it needs to be looked at in that context um, the transport risk what they talked about is political interference with ports and transport routes to enable the carriage of nuclear um, infrastructure whether it's power whether it's waste whether it's components whether it's construction etc etc this report was focused more on nuclear fuel but um, there is some risk uh, within the EU that interest groups, political or otherwise, will start interfering with that. So I think it was quite appropriate that Euratom get that out in the open, put it in front of policymakers, warn them of the consequences. And uh, they didn't take the next step, which I think is to do a little bit of lobbying in favour of nuclear transport. Um, I think there's been 11,000 transportations of nuclear fuel without a single incident in the EU. So, you know, that's pretty good going over a few decades and a, a few more people should know that statistic. Um, but I don't see any uh, present day concern that that will stop reactors operating. But it's an increasing challenge that they need to face up to. The, the one thing I did take note of in there, sorry to interrupt you, Brandon, was the average inventory levels in Europe of three years. 
Um, and I couldn't quite work out from the language used whether that was the case now, in which case we're looking at utilities sitting on three years' worth of inventory, which is a big clue, or it is suggesting and making recommendations that that is the case. And so they've traditionally held between two and three years of inventory. Um, I guess we'll know the answer to that. I'd have to go back to the report and have a closer look at it now that you raise that. Uh, we will know the answer to that in a couple of weeks' time. Um, it was, the, you're right, the, the comment was made in the context of holding strategic inventory is a key mitigation that all EU utilities must maintain both to disruptions, potential disruptions from transport that we've just talked about, but also they, for the second year now, they um, shone a light on disruption, future disruption of production, lack of investment in exploration. They talked specifically about um, production of uranium going offline and not coming back on again. So there's a degree of recognition there of the remarkable decay curve that we have in the world's current uranium production out there. So the strong message coming through there was European utilities would be very unwise to deplete their current levels of inventory. Yeah. And it's obviously a message for other utilities in the rest of the world as well. And that goes to what we've talked about before, which is whatever causes utilities to stop underbuying and destocking their inventories will bring a fairly rapid price response in the uranium market. Absolutely. And I think the one other point, we'll finish up on this because I think you're right. In a couple of weeks' time, when there's a bit more information in the market, we should come back and get into, get into this. But the other thing they talked about, and, I, and I, I don't think it's going to be new news to utility buyers, is diversification of supply. For partially because of the reasons we're talking about here, but also dependence on any one major supplier could be problematic for them, um, not just physically, but geopolitically in this current environment. And it's worth reading it as well on this point, because diversification of supply is one of those things that's been, that everyone's been aware of but not concerned by over the last few years, until quite recently. And utility buyers, it's almost like, oh yes, we know we should be diversifying supply, but well, while prices are this cheap, you know, we can probably stretch that rubber band a little bit. So it's, it's the importance of diversification has been a little bit lost in a low pricing environment, both from a sort of a bargain hunting perspective, I mean, People who like a bargain or look past lots of flaws in something if they're getting it at half or a third of the price that they paid recently. But equally, low prices indicate lots of availability of supply and you don't feel the risks of an undiversified portfolio in the same way. So the language has really changed in this report. It's recognising without naming the various geopolitical tensions that are going on in the marketplace. Um, it's timing straight after the report of the working group. It probably would have been finalised and ready for publication before that report was released, but there's been plenty in the lead up to the Department of Energy report that would give them the clues and the signals to what would potentially be coming, whether that's Iran sanctions, um, the Russian suspension agreement, or just an elevation of geopolitical language and um, rhetoric that's creating potential supply disruptions here. So 
all good, solid advice for European utilities and the utilities the world over, which ultimately will benefit uranium production. Yeah, and I think I think the, Amer- the American producers will be uh, banging that drum loud and clear too, because th- I think their argument is buying cheap is a kind of false uh, sense of security. Um, you know, it may be good now, but it's causing them huge difficulties in the long run potentially. Um, well, look, that is a, that is that's a topic we should get into, I think, in a couple of weeks' time. But um, Brandon, great weekly catch up. And thanks for explaining it. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by this SMR. I'd love to talk to you more about that, the SMR um, technologies out there and how that plays out. Yeah, it's a big topic. It's an interesting topic. It's a moving feast and it's one of the real big opportunities in nuclear power for winning hearts and minds. And we didn't even get on to talking about fast breeder reactors which recycle their own fuel. So. We've got something up our sleeve for another slow week. <laughs> Sounds like. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we will have another a few slow weeks, so um, we, we can take advantage of that. Um, well, look, thanks again. I bet you're, you better get back to, you look like you're at work. Is there, work, is there anyone there, or are you by yourself? No, no, we've, <laughs> everyone's knocked off. It is a Friday afternoon, after all, and it's, uh, it's gone 5 o'clock. Oh, my goodness. We've got a... Still got a report to get to the board, so I'll be here for a little bit, but um, right. not complaining. It's just so nice to be here in a quiet environment. I bet. A change is as good as a rest, right? And um, what, I always ask you this on a Friday now. So what is your wine of choice going to be this evening? Oh, gee, you know what? I haven't even thought about that, but I haven't drunk any red this week. Um, I've, I've been quite busy, and so uh, the, the extent of my <laughs> indulgence this week has been nipping a glass of white off my wife um so i reckon a decent red i'm i've got a i've got a 2011 shiraz malbec mm-hmm. produced um in the geograph wine region of western australia by the most incredible people called baracus winery beautiful beautiful people it's a husband and wife team they do amazing things with wine and everything else so um, I reckon I might phone ahead and ask my wife to just take the top off that for me and get it breathing. Sounds sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Fantastic. I think I, I, think I might go for the uh, Lebanese tonight. I think I've got the... Oh, okay. Yeah, i got a sort of cheeky 2001 Chateau Moussard. I think it's, it's got my name on it. It's a bit early to be talking about that right now, but so I may change my mind during the course of the day, but th- that's what I'm planning. Yeah. Yeah, you've got time on your side. Like, I, if I'm going to get um, a bit of oxygen into that bottle, I've got to make a decision fairly soon. Well, I'll let you go and do that. Brandon, thanks so much. We'll speak to you next week. Yeah, great to talk. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and, of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.